Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. I hope you've managed to have a look at our fantastic programme for this year's series of online events for the Wigtown Book Festival. If not, head along to the website at wigtownbookfestival.com and check it out. There are tons of exciting, lovely Wigtown flavoured adventures awaiting you there. In this episode, though, we are not looking forward, but rather we are looking back. We're looking back to the books that got us interested in reading and also the books that we always meant to read but haven't quite got round to yet. The books from the backlist might no longer be new in the shops, might be out of print even, but they're hugely worth your attention and likely lurking in one of Wigtown's many brilliant second-hand bookshops. Andy Miller is one of the hosts of Backlisted, a podcast which gives new life to old books. It features a guest, usually a writer, who has chosen a book that they love and which they think deserves a wider audience. Author of The Year of Reading Dangerously, Andy is a fantastic ambassador for reading more diversely, more boldly and more adventurously and it was such a delight to get to speak to him for this episode. Andy Miller, what a pleasure. Hello Peggy. Just reflecting, it's been a while since you and I crossed paths, so it's very nice. When was the last time I saw you? Well, it will have been in, in Scotland. Probably at a festival somewhere, because I know you did you did plenty. Uh, in a good way. I was out on t- I was on tour. Do you make it sound so rock and roll? Well, that's how I make it okay to myself. That was really, really good fun, especially looking back on it from this particular year, where I haven't gone anywhere and done anything. It seems an incredible treat to think back and Chris crossing the country to talk to people about books. That was good fun. Goodness. Yeah, it's been a seismic year for that, for the kind of dislocated, not being out and about thing. Andy, can I ask where it all, cutting back quite a bit from that, where it all began for you as a reader? Okay, so this always sounds... I've never successfully found a way to communicate this, which won't slightly put you back up. But I'm just going to say it because it's the truth. I was really good at reading, right, at school. And that, frankly, is still to date the only thing I've ever been good at. <laughs> it was just the thing I was good at. You know, some come, some kids are good at running and playing the recorder or, you know, whatever we did in the 70s, country dancing or whatever. I wasn't good at any of those things. The only thing that nature saw fit to bestow on me was a talent for reading. Certainly at primary school, that was a mixed blessing because, you know, it was good from a a point of view of having something to do, but it was bad because I had to have something to do because nobody wanted to play with me because I was was so square. This isn't the aspirational tone you were hoping for, is it? But anyway, uh, it's true. It's the truth. I enjoyed reading so much and I was also so good at it that at the age of about eight, my mum had to start sending me into school with with my own books because I'd read everything in the school library. I'd read everything that the school had to offer. I was a really omnivorous reader. I was really enthusiastic. It was just a thing I was good at and I loved doing. And I loved doing it for not just pleasure and not just escapism, but introspection as well. You know, reading doesn't just take you out of yourself. It it takes you into yourself, right? So I really loved things like, basically my parents were brilliant. They they let us read anything except Looking. Do you remember Looking? No. It was a comic. This shows the type of house I grew up in. It was was an ITV comic. And my mum didn't like ITV. We didn't. We weren't really allowed to watch ITV. So <laughs> I wasn't allowed to have looking. But I was allowed to have everything else. So I was allowed to read comics. I love Marvel comics, the little ones you used to buy for twelve p from the newsagents. I really loved 
Winnie the Pooh and the House at Pooh Corner because I loved the humour of them. Um, I particularly loved Eeyore, and I still do, in the kind of gloomy, uh, funny way. <laughs> um, I loved the Moomin books by Tuve Janssen. The 18th Emergency by Betsy Byers. That was read on Jack and Nori in about 1974 or 5. And I can remember, I, in, my, in my memory practically getting up from the tv pulling on my coat getting on my shoes walking straight out the door and going down to the library to try and get hold of a copy immediately i absolutely loved that book so really it was the whole thing i'm i get asked quite often what's a good book to help a reluctant reader if they're a child and i i'm full of sympathy and empathy for that problem and there are answers but the truth of it is I, I i sort of that isn't an issue i ever had to grapple with i was very very lucky i just it was my thing you mentioned, Andy, about reading being seeming square and, you know, hard to make friends when you're a committed reader. That doesn't strike me as, a, as that, it, that it's still the case, you know, with world book night parties and fancy. It seems to me that to be a reader now is quite, I mean, I've always thought it was quite cool. Do you think reading's had a PR <laughs> sort of shift in perception? Peggy, now that is such a great question. Well, OK, I'll, I'll, I'll let me answer in two ways. I think I've got better at making friends. That's the first thing to, uh, <laughs> I hope, God knows. I've had nearly 50 years of practice. Yes, I think there is a big difference between, first of all, when I grew up, but also I, I think childhood reading is a slightly different thing. I think it's quite difficult when you're a child to actually be solitary because your energy levels are such that perhaps you're not driven to be solitary and you're also constantly being chivied from place to place, being given activities to do or baths to have or meals to eat or other children to hang out with, aren't you? I think as you, certainly the passage from childhood into teenagerdom, reading books as a teenager is a much cooler activity if you're a certain kind of teenager and you're attracted to a certain kind of book. I mean, I don't know about you, can you remember what you, I'm going to ask you a question. What was the first book you read as a teenager that you thought, wow, this isn't like something I've ever read as a child? You know, one of those transitional books. They really mark us when we're that kind of age, you know, when we're wet cement, as I always say. I know what you mean. And I think, I will I will answer it, but I will say that I think or generation, there were probably fewer, there were fewer YA books. So you kind of graduated from Roald Dahl to you know, the Brontes. Do you know what I mean? You kind yes, of like, that's true. just, you'd stepped up really quickly. Um, if you were a boy, uh, if you were a particular kind of boy, you went Hardy Boy Mysteries, Stephen King, James Herbert, and then often you got stuck on James Herbert. Uh, do, do boys didn't get to read Judy Bloom, did they? You weren't allowed. <laughs> no, even no, I didn't acceptable. read Judy Bloom, no. She was a good gateway drug. She? Yeah, okay. <laughs> she's, she's great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lots of things you'd never encountered, let's put it that way. I've just been rereading um, and reading The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, which was a book that I last read when I was 19. And I can remember at the age of 19 reading it and being rather underwhelmed by it because I knew that it was a book that one was supposed to relate to and that it was a book that teenagers read. And I can remember reading it and thinking, oh, I don't relate to this. Who's this? Why is this kid whining? This American kid, shut up, right? And then I just reread it a few weeks ago as a 52-year-old father, and I thought, oh, I spent the whole book thinking, oh, my God, this poor kid. 
<laughs> Why isn't anybody looking after Holden Caulfield? This is ter- this poor traumatised child. I had the same experience with that book. And have you read much other Salinger? I have. Yeah, I have. In fact, I, I read it and then I read Franny and Zooey and lo- like loved the whole Glass family and thought, what? Why is why is Catcher in the Rye the book he's best? I think still yeah best known for. Peggy, I could not agree with you more. I went on and read everything else that J.D. Salinger wrote, including the stuff that isn't in book form that's just floating around on the internet. I read it all in about a fortnight and I had exactly the same experience. First of all, I thought, wow, this is incredible writing from beginning to end, considerably more esoteric at points than The Catcher in the Rye. But also The Catcher in the Rye felt like an anomaly, this massively successful, very good book, but almost accidentally huge because he's on a I felt I felt like Salinger is on a kind of spiritual path that is quite esoteric and quite difficult to get your head round which is all a very long-winded way of saying has reading changed no but I think we change as people I think there are more things that we can do here in the 21st century book festivals and online communities and book groups and all those things but they're all adult experiences aren't they they're all adult things that have come online in the last 20 30 years I wonder if the childhood experience of reading is still pretty much the same you get a book you pick it up you like it or you don't like it you put it down you pick another one up have you gone back to reread many of the books you read as a child I do do it actually yeah I mean, I have done it sometimes for pleasure, often for professional reasons. I wrote a book called The Year of Reading Dangerously a few years ago, and I and that was a book about reading things, 50 books that I had at various points lied about having read. So, <laughs> I, so I went back. I seem to remember I, I reread a few childhood favourites or things that I felt I ought to have read as a child but hadn't got round to when I was doing that. But, I mean, I still read Tuve Janssen's books, for pleasure not just her adult books because of course we now know which we didn't know in the 70s that because they hadn't been translated into english at that point uh we now know that she had a a full career as a an adult writer as well as the author of the moomin books i find with the certainly the last couple of moomin books moomin papa at sea and uh, moomin valley in november a book in which there are spoilers no moomins they were always on the cusp of adult reading anyway they're very melancholy books, so they're not like adventure stories. They're, they're very thoughtful. So, yeah, I do, I do go back and reread. It is slightly anxiety-inducing. Certainly if you go back and read a book that you loved as a teenager and you think, oh, what if this isn't any good? I what, know. What, you, ju- you judge your younger self. What, you compromise your... If you've got a wonderful memory of being, as many people do, of, you know, let's say you were on holiday when you were 20 and you took the Magus by John Fowles with you and you remember the summer you were backpacking in Greece reading the Magus. My advice is <laughs> don't read it now because it may not stand up. <laughs> Too painful. That might be unfair if anyone's listened to this and they are a big John Fowles fan. I love some of John Fowles' work, but there are certain books that seem just right for young adults to read, which aren't YA, as you said, Peggy. Just books that... Have you ever read The Dice Man by Luke Reinhardt? No, I'm aware of it, though. I think it's... No, tell me, you, you, you read it as part of, I did. Part of your That's year. I did. one of the worst books ever written. It's terrible. And yet, I'm not the person to judge. I can imagine reading that book when I was 15 and it absolutely blowing my mind. And having... And, and it's got proper ideas in it. I just think the right book at the right moment is always the charm. That's always what you're hoping for. And of course, you can't really force it. Always the next book. I think that's always very 
exciting. It might be the next one, even in our advanced years. It might be the next one that makes the difference, you know. And is that what keeps you reading, Andy? Like, I mean, just in terms of that kind of what's a clearly been a passion for your entire life and a huge, you know, central to your life. Is that is that what keeps keeps yeah. you turning the next a- page? Absolutely, that's a very yeah, absolutely. What keeps us reading anyway on the kind of micro level, just in a book, we want to know what happens next. That's one of the reasons that that we're always given for why we read, and that is one of the reasons why we read. I have found certainly in the last ten years, um, I think the reading that I that I did in my forties was the richest and most varied reading that I've ever done in my life. I feel like I learnt a great deal and I feel like I expanded my taste and I feel like I had moments of revelation as a result of pushing out of my comfort zone and reading work by, uh, well, partly because of doing this podcast backlisted. So we, we do um, books that have drifted out of print or might not be well known and um, our guests recommend them. So I'm, I've read things that I perhaps, um, no, certainly never would have read, but also just thinking, God, there's a whole world of literally a world of writing fiction in translation non-fiction books from different cultures oh, lots of books actually by women for instance that I think lots of male readers when they're young men don't feel confident enough to read one of the nicer things about getting older is I think all this stuff just sort of falls away I mean I give you an example when I was doing reading for the year of reading dangerously one of the books that I read was Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Reese. I quite liked it for some reason about six months later I thought I, I don't think I really got that I think I need to go back and read that again so I, I read it again and on the second reading I thought oh no that's great that's really good that's really good I wonder what I wonder what Jean Reese's other novels are like and so at random I picked up her she, so Jean Reese wrote four novels in the 1930s and then didn't write anything for 25 years Wide Sargasso Sea comes out in the late 1960s and those 30s novels didn't do a thing anyway I picked up a copy of Good Morning Midnight by Jean Rhys, which was published in 1939. And that absolutely blew me away. Changed the course of my reading, I think, over the last 10 years. Just opened up a whole world of fiction and a sensibility that I I hadn't been ready to receive until that point. And who knew that that would happen? I had no idea. It's the next book. But it, it totally changed how I felt about... The canon, actually. Who gets to say what the canon is? How the canon is created? And what? And the, if I just finish this thought, the amazing thing about Jean Rhys and about Good Morning Midnight is, on one level, Good Morning Midnight, you know, it's set in a kind of location of kind of quite familiar to me, sort of, you know, London, Paris, bedsits. It's all quite seedy. Um, it's quite close to a kind of sort of Graham Greene or Patrick Hamilton or George Orwell ambience. But here's the thing. It's written in a far more experimental style than any of those novelists wrote in. And it's written by a woman. And just the fact that those two things are being brought to bear on what was quite familiar territory was a total revelation to me. And so all sorts of writing opened itself up to me after I'd, after I'd read that book. Have you read it? It's a gateway book. I haven't, I ha- um, Good Morning Midnight. No, I, I haven't read it. I've read some of her stories and I've read Wide Sargasso Sea. Um, I, I, do you know what I find knowing about her life makes reading her really painful? <laughs> it's a stupid thing to say, isn't it? But no, you know, not just because it was so. It's so interesting. I can totally understand that. And though she would have denied it, 
certainly those 430s novels are, I mean, all the heroines have different names, but they're all Jean Rhys. They're all autobiographical. They're obviously autobiographical. What affected me so deeply, and I think actually, and I doubt anyone reading my work would make this connection, and I, why would they? But I was totally seduced by the the process that allows her to take things that had happened to her, scramble them, rearrange them in this sparse, bitter, funny, Eeyore-ish <laughs> way and produce these little novels of human experience. It, it's, it's the real, it's the artistic thing happening right there. You're taking the particular and you're finding a way to express it and expand it to the universal. You've made me feel I've I've been doing Jean Rhys wrong, Andy. Hooray! Maybe I need to come back at it, and yeah, I should I should give her another go. It's all been worth it. I I did want to pick up on on the idea of the canon though, and how and and I I guess more broadly, just I think how a lot of people are put off reading by ideas that they're doing it wrong or that they shouldn't be reading. You, know, you, you touched on boys not reading certain books by women. What did you learn, I suppose, in that time that you spent meeting other readers? What were the most surprising things that, or, or misconceptions or uh, feelings of failure? It's really interesting. So I, um, when we first met, Peggy, I was doing a lecture to of a thing called Read Yourself Fitter. And part of that was to try and encourage people to feel that they could read anything. Uh, with really, it's not, you know, when it comes down to it, it's not that hard. The only thing stopping you reading Middlemarch when it comes down to it is sitting there and reading Middlemarch. Um, have you read Middlemarch? No. Right. Okay. So no, you're, no, so, so you're going to read Middlemarch <laughs> because Peggy, there's no, all you do is sit there and read it. You just read it. Right. So that's the, that is, I've just given you a one hour motivational lecture in the space of 10 seconds. That's fundamentally my message is just get on with it. Right. Stop whining. Just do it. Part of that lecture was I would ask people to commit to reading a book that they'd always meant to read but never got round to and what was so interesting about it was although you would have some really unusual choices nevertheless when it came down to it the same authors came up came up again or the same books came up again and again Ulysses by James Joyce Middlemarch by George Eliot A Novel or Two by Charles Dickens Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen and these are completely the centre of the canon, aren't they? They are the books that we carry round in our heads, the cultural pressure to feel that we should read. And I have, a, I have mixed feelings about this. On the one hand, I think that pressure stops us actually reading them. I also feel that there's a weird kind of counterintuitive thing going on where we we want to tell ourselves that maybe pride and prejudice is overrated because that lets us off the hook for not having read it well it isn't it's really great <laughs> the reason why it's in the canon is it's a really good book lots of the books in the canon are really amazing books however the thing we need to interrogate is the reasons why they're in the canon and certainly we can make an argument that there's a upper middle class to upper class, quite male idea of what constitutes real books and real reading over a number of decades and centuries. And I think that's, uh, that's there to be challenged all the time. 
But my feeling is always the way to tackle those books, the way to tackle Pride and Prejudice or Middlemarch is to feel totally free to read whatever you want around that. You know, I I'm really passionately believe that we shouldn't stay in our lanes. We we shouldn't feel, well, that's not for me. Whether it's me talking about, I don't know, Georgette Heyer, for instance, writer of lighthearted Regency comedies and romances, or whether it's women who feel they can't read Philip Roth because Roth comes with all this baggage that they would prefer not to deal with, perhaps understandably. Nevertheless, I think there's no substitute when it comes down to it and no better way of dealing with our hang-ups than actually just getting on and doing it. And certainly I found it really liberating. That was the main thing from talking to people about books and from reading some of these things for myself. I kind of thought, oh, okay. It's, I, I sound like Peggy Lee in uh, Is That All There Is? Is That All There Is to Pride and Prejudice? Yeah. You just read it. You just read. You just read it. Yeah. And it's really liberating and really. In, I don't want to over. I never want to overcomplicate it. Actually, I just sort of think, well, you can choose. It's not like climbing a mountain. It's not like learning to fly a plane. It's like sitting on your backside and reading a book. It's not hard. Do you feel enabled? Yeah, no, I do. It just—it's just what I want to do now. That now, having chatted to you, I just want to sack work off and go and sit down and. <laughs> Read, read a book. I've got so many nice things to read. That seems a nice point, though, Andy, to, to ask you a little bit more about what you're working on just now. A new project is in the offing, I believe. Uh, so I'm writing a book at the moment about, I mean, it's related to some of the things we've been talking about, how we retain our enthusiasm for books, certainly, but also film and music and art and whatever else, as we get older, without looking like an idiot. Or is looking like an idiot the price you have to pay to retain your enthusiasm for all those things? Is it a price worth paying? So, for instance, we're talking about things we liked as teenagers and how we feel about going back to read them. We know, is it necessarily emotionally healthy to feel the same way you felt about Catcher in the Rye when you were 15 as you do when you were 50? What does that mean? Does that mean you've learned nothing? Is it a bad thing to let go of these things? That's one of the questions. I was listening to some records this weekend by The Cure. I was listening to Faith uh, and Pornography by The Cure, the most miserable adolescent records from my own miserable adolescence. I was really enjoying them. And I was thinking, well, what is this? Why... <laughs> Why do I still enjoy this so much? Have I not changed at all? Yes, of course I have. We either change, we change in some ways, or maybe our attitude to ourselves changes and our attitude to what these things represent changes. But actually, when it comes down to it, hearing Robert Smith griping away <laughs> over a very big bass line and, and huge echoing, maybe I just like that sound. Maybe that's just something I like. So the book is about that. And it's like The Year of Dream Dangerously and, you know, the stuff I write about. It's about books. But I wanted to just broaden it out a bit to try and make it a cultural overview and just to revisit some of the things that have really mattered to me in my life and try and talk about how I felt about them then and what they represented then and then see if, if they work now. Like I'm writing a, a thing about Banksy, whose work I really hate. But that's not what the thing is about, the piece is about. The, the piece is trying to say, 
what do I do about that? Do I try and understand the work of Banksy to the point where I make myself love it? Or do I ignore it? Or do I become a grumpy old man complaining about it, this thing that everybody else likes but I don't like and I know better than everyone else? It, it, it strikes me that none of these are very good looks. <laughs> so what's the solution? I mean, I think that's, you know, there's a lot to be said for, for a space like Twitter, but one of the things that's good about it, at least, I think, is for uh, people's bizarre passions. Do you know, like, I think enthusiasm for strange things is quite underrated sometimes. It's the best thing about Twitter. And it's the best thing about book recommendation on Twitter, actually. My favourite aspect of Twitter, and I've found so many good books via Twitter, is almost I pay more attention to a tweet where someone's gone They've got 280 characters and they can just say, here's a brilliant book. No one's heard of it. I absolutely loved it. It's one of my five favourites. They've got no room to say everything, anything else. You think, wow, you must love that book so much that you're willing to th- stick that message in that bottle and throw it into the ocean. I, I, you know, I almost pay more attention to those things than I do to read. I don't really read reviews anymore. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. I trust reviews less than I trust somebody with, without any kind of vested interest just saying out of their hearts you should read this book bang and I can just look at a tweet and go I don't this is I don't know this person at all <laughs> I don't know anything about this book they're not bringing any baggage to it I'm not bringing any baggage to it I can just read it you know whereas if you get a book from the canon that's got a load of baggage with it hasn't it including your own attitude to it and the canon if you buy a book because you've read six reviews telling you it's a masterpiece, you probably read it metaphorically with your arms crossed saying, come on, impress me. And what I always want is the... <laughs> come on, Dickens. Yeah, come on. <laughs> if you're so... Mr. Micawber, not very funny, I think you'll find. Whereas I, I've, just, I've just read a book called The Watchtower by an Australian writer called Elizabeth Harrower, which was written in the mid-1960s. And that was actually sent to me by a backlisted listener saying nothing except, I know you read loads. I know you've got loads on your to read file, but this is my favourite book. I think you'd enjoy it. That's it. So I read it and it's absolutely terrific. But now I've recommended it and that'll put you, you know, but you should still read it. Andy, we're 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 nearly we're nearly at a at a close today. Um, I just wanted to, if you could just say for people, uh, I'm sure a lot of these listeners would would absolutely love Backlisted if they're not already listening in. Could you just tell people where they can find it and things? And um, I I love it. I I I feel it's um in a world where 600 books can come out on one day, Backlisted is like a cool calm pond, looking back at all the beautiful gems that have come before. Thank you very much. Well, the idea is that we, as far as we've uh, been able, we too totally just respond to what our guests want to bring. And what we found is, because it's not tied in with any sales cycle or anything like that, it is a tremendously free and empty space for us and our listeners to explore. You know, there's not much baggage attached to a lot of the books that we cover because either they're they're out of print or or they're they're barely in print or they're loved by 200 enthusiasts and nobody else so you can find us there are like we've done nearly we've done like 120 episodes or something i mean it's just ridiculous you can find us at backlisted.fm 
Uh, we're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on SoundCloud. We're in all the usual places. And we've had, sometimes we have quite famous guests. We've had Billy Bragg on. We've had Philip Pullman on. Uh, Carmen Khalil's been on a couple of times, the founder of Virago. Uh, uh, we've just recorded an episode on Therese Racan by Emile Zola with Rachel Joyce and Andrew O'Hagan. That's coming out Monday week. I mean, it's I co-host it with John Mitchinson, who's the publisher at Unbound. And we both feel it's been a, just a huge blessing in our lives to have this excuse at this late stage to massively expand our, our knowledge of, of literature and just read all these authors that we, we perhaps never would have found time to, to get to. And it runs on enthusiasm. The whole thing runs on enthusiasm. So I love it when we record an episode and at the end I think brilliant anyone who listens to this is going to want to go out and read this book that's what we that's what we're really aiming to do to just get people out of their comfort zones and 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 get people to feel that they can that they can read anything and that all they have to do is just pick up the book and start reading it well i don't know about you but all i want to do now is just curl up with a really good book Many, many thanks to Andy and do check out his marvellous podcast, Backlisted. We can't wait to explore his new book when it hits the shelves. That's all for now. Thank you all so much for listening. Look forward to joining you again. Do take care of yourselves in the meanwhile. Bye bye for now.